Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So what is money laundering? It's a financial crime, but what's involved and how much money is being laundered in this country? A hundred billion dollars plus. That's more money than Canada spends on all the federal government programs in a year. We're going to talk about how it's done, who the players are, who's representing and defending them. And uh, my guest tells me we're actually keeping international despots in, in power by allowing them to launder their money in this country. Dr. Christian Luprecht is expert for the Cullen Commission investigating the B.C. Casino money laundering. He's a professor at RMC and Queen's University, also an international expert on security and uh, defense, and he testifies frequently before parliamentary committees. And uh, two of his books are Lessons from the Enhanced Forward Presence, 2017 to 2020, and uh, Public Security and Federal Politics. There are new books going to be released uh, within months by Professor Luprecht. Christian, thank you very much for taking the time. You could have you could have knocked me off my chair very easily when you when you told me about a hundred billion dollars, more than a hundred billion dollars, being uh, laundered in this country annually, and it, it's domestic, but it's also international from all kinds of individuals and organizations. So let me start with this: Is Canada a particularly attractive option for criminal money laundering of the international variety? Canada is one of the most attractive places in the world where if you're a bad person internationally, you want to place your money, both because our privacy laws are very strong and our investigative capacities are very weak, not just in absolute terms, but also relative to some of our, if you want, major competitors in quotation marks in the space. So if you think about the Australia, the United States, United Kingdom, Germany. In fact, when was the last time that any of our listeners heard of a major money laundering investigation in this country, let alone a major money laundering investigation where somebody ended up being convicted for the transnational component uh, of that investigation? To the best of my knowledge, there has never been a conviction for transnational money laundering in this country. The convictions that we have have always been domestically and they've always been relatively low-hanging fruit. So why wouldn't we want to put your money here? In fact, there's an international term for it. It's called snowshoring, bringing your country, money into, into Canada's sort of sovereign jurisdiction, uh, putting it into real estate here, putting it into expensive cars, into art, um, into the stock market in order to safeguard it and safe keep it uh, from jurisdictions where it would be at much greater risk. So money laundering at its most fundamental is a financial crime, as, as I understand it. Now, the most complex crime, you told me off the air when we talked, the most complex crime known to man. And when you think about the, f- the number, the $100 billion plus dollars, it must involve some of the most sophisticated and well-connected individuals in the world. This is huge money. So uh, there's three basic components. So money laundering takes um, gains from crime and puts them into the system and makes them look and appear legitimate so you can use them for perfectly legal purposes. So there's basically three basic components. So you need to place that money into the, the dirty money into the financial system in some capacity. 
you need to then move that money through that system. So that's commonly called layering. It's called layering because there are many different components to a chain or to a network, and it's relatively easy for the criminals to add components to that network. But every element that you add to the network makes it considerably more complex to investigate. And then you need to make it, you need to extract it from the financial system. So that's known as integration. So people wonder, so how do we come up with $100 billion? How could you possibly know that? Well, so we know that the global economy is about 91, give or take, sort of trillion US dollars. Now, we know that sort of, uh, global financial crime is thought to be about 4% of the global economy. So that gets you to about uh, three and a half or so trillion U.S. dollars. Canadian economy is about $1.8 trillion. So, you know, if you take about 4% or so or something of that, um, you arrive at around $100 billion, um, you know, give or take $50 billion on either side in terms of the estimates that we have. The low end is 49 the high end is 147 But if you could tax that at a rate of, say, just let's just say like roughly 25%, that generates about $25 billion a year in tax revenue. That's just a little bit more than we spend in our de- entire Department of National Defense. So the next logical question is, the inescapable question is, how does it continue? How have, how have our governments, how have our political leaders, and I know there's been an action on this in the most recent budget, and you're going to talk to us about that, but how over the years has money laundering been allowed to not only prosper, but thrive. So we've always, of course, had domestic money laundering in terms of people who engage in crime. Much of the crime that people engage in tends to be cash. If you think of drug transaction, for instance, and then you need to launder that through the system and make it legitimate. But where Canada has become particularly um, uh, interesting is for the vast assets in the global economy. So, for instance, there's an outflow of about uh, 50 Uh, billion or so U.S. dollars from China each year in illicit capital, some of which makes it onto onto Canadian shores. So there are staggering amounts of illicit monies, in particular, as you started this conversation, for instance, from authoritarian regimes, because people are afraid that they might get deposed or so, they rob their states, they need to put their money somewhere. And so Canada becomes very attractive. But the moment you add an international component, it makes it much more difficult to investigate, because now you need cooperation from other jurisdictions that's often difficult to get in some of those jurisdictions you have all sorts of different elements of numbered companies and so forth that make it very very difficult to see uh, the original ownership but then people put their money here for instance in real estate and so Canadians are wondering why is it that real estate prices are soaring well it's estimated that in Vancouver alone for instance perhaps as much as one-third of condominiums are sitting empty that's simply there for the sole purpose of people who are parking their illicit gains until they can find a better day to pull out their money and put it somewhere else. So we're looking at staggering amounts of money that have very direct repercussions for hardworking Canadians who, for instance, themselves would like to get their hands on their own condominium or their own house somewhere, but are being outrun by offshore money uh, that is looking for, for a safe haven. The problem is, of course, that municipal politicians, for instance, are quite happy to keep driving up property prices because that means increased revenue on their property taxes. And so 
to some extent, politicians are complicit in this because they're happy to have all this offshore money because, in effect, it adds to Canadian productivity without the government having had to do anything um, to raise that money and bring it here to Canada. So politicians are conflicted uh, because it would mean that as Canadians, our government would have to work a lot harder in order to generate those profits in Canada. So it's a, it's a difficult politically conversation. Christian, the Cullen Commission, uh, what are you expecting what have you said to them? What could this do? What can this commission do to really drive forward the initiative to interdict money laundering? The Cullen Commission is the single most important effort we have had in Canada to try to make transparent the patterns of money laundering in this country, how they are directly affecting Canadians, including how it is driving crime and gang crime in this country and laying out a path forward as to what can be done about it. Its limitation is that it is a provincial inquiry, so its main focus will be on what is within the provincial remit to do. There are many challenges at the federal level and many changes that need to be made at the federal level, but its focus will be at the provincial level. But there's a lot that we can do. And so one of the elements that we've been focusing on is the regulatory capacity that provinces have. If we have better reporting on things such as real estate transactions, actions, expensive cars, um, expensive art, uh, casinos, then that will already allow much more transparency in making sure that those entities who do not report and not report properly are fined and face significant fines. And we know from other jurisdictions that that in and of itself can have a significant impact. So provincial politicians cannot just blame the federal government for not doing more. There's a lot that they can already do. And that was our key message to the inquiry. And we laid out a very clear pathway um, of how this can be done and can be done effectively, even within the jurisdiction of British Columbia. There are other jurisdictions, such as Ontario and also Quebec, that have made some significant inroads in this. Uh, but there are severe limitations by virtue of some of the constraints uh, that need to come in terms of, of forays from the federal government. Where does FinTrack fit, fit into this picture? And uh, talk to us, please, about what was brought forward in the last federal budget, as far as money laundering is concerned. So FinTrack is our financial intelligence unit. Um, Western countries stood these units up fairly expeditiously after 9-11 um, in, in an effort to try to get a better, better hand on illicit money, in particular on terrorist financing. Um, in Canada, we took a very conservative approach compared to other jurisdictions such as the U.S. or Australia, where the Canadian financial intelligence unit, FinTrack, has primarily a regulatory role, and it has some capacity to collect and analyze information, and it can also, under very limited circumstances, disclose some information to law enforcement, but those disclosures are uh, vastly insufficient relative to the challenges that we face. That's, of course, in contrast to banks. Banks have the data, and they have the data analytics capacity, but often it is not in their business interest to disclose, and we have very strict privacy legislation, um, and I would contend that, especially in this country, the privacy legislation that we have, I've come to the conclusion when it comes to financial crime, protects criminals and protects the ultra-wealthy uh, at the expense of everyday Canadians. And in other jurisdictions, uh, FIUs um, have done a much better job at trying to hold uh, their banks and financial institutions accountable for turning a blind eye. So the bad guys are not paying taxes. The government isn't working to collect those taxes. 
Doesn't that delegitimize government? And I think this is ultimately the concern here. When Canadians feel that bad guys not just get away with the crimes that they commit, but they also get away with then taking that money and not paying tax on that money and being able to use jurisdictions such as Canada to hide their money and to enrich themselves with investments, um, then Canadians will say, well, why should I pay my fair share? Why should I pay my taxes? We have over 500 Canadians that have been exposed in various disclosures of the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, and so forth in terms of aggressive tax tax evasion practices. So these are publicly known names that have been revealed in those papers. Not one of those Canadians has been charged by the Canada Revenue Agency. Now, there might have been behind sort of closed doors agreements that people might have struck, but I think it is disheartening that this much financial crime is going on in this country, and it is seriously, I think, delegitimizing our democratic institutions. And so aside from the harm that it does to our society and our communities, I think the real harm is to our democratic institutions. And that's why politicians must move on this particular issue, especially in a day and age when democratic institutions are already under considerable duress as a result of the pandemic, as a result of social media and so forth. How much do we know about who's involved, who the international players are? Um, so this is major. Uh, this is this is a major international operation to the point where, for instance, we've in Vancouver had one case of uh, um, of so 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 these are known as money laundering as a service entities. So they provide the lawyers, the accountants, and they provide all the nodes in this network for international people to come to them and say, "Here, I want to launder ten billion dollars. How do I do it?" And and uh, and they take a cut off the top. And so in Canada, this has become a professional business. As I say, we have one known case. That case, unfortunately, fell apart due to uh, poor um, disclosure, uh, unfortunate disclosure by the Crown. So it shows that even when we can identify the cases in Canada, we can't actually bring people to justice. And so we need to make sure that both on the criminal side and on the civil forfeiture side, we vastly up our game uh, in order to reestablish our credibility in the space. We have less than a minute. Do you think we'll do this? This is amply doable. This is what we laid out in our detailed report that listeners can access and download from the Cullen Commission. Uh, It is a very complex space, um, but it is entirely possible. It does require a concerted effort by the province, and it requires a concerted effort by the federal government in order to uh, make FinTrack more proactive in its ability to disclose, in order to ensure we get a federal police force that can actually prosecute and to think differently about the space. Okay. Jurisdictions such as the UK, Australia, for instance, have given powers of disruption to certain of their, um, of their criminal and security intelligence agencies simply to take illicit flows or highly suspicious flows and being able to stop those flows from going through the systems because the best thing that you can do is to, the, to criminals is ultimately right. take away their illicit gains, that's going to be a major deterrent for people to engage in this activity in Canada and to bring their illicit gains to Canada. Christian, thank you so much. We can't shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Uh, We need to phase them out. We need to manage the transition off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, That is going to take time. And in the meantime, we have to manage that transition. As I've always said, don't say to me today what you don't want me to play back for you tomorrow. 
Jason Kenny joins us, the Premier of Alberta. Lots to talk about with the Premier. And uh, Premier Kenny, I always appreciate that you'll come on the show. You're one of few uh, leading politicians who don't do a detour around us. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, I appreciate that, Roy, but uh, you just ruined my Sunday by playing that clip. I know. I did it intentionally. <laughs> when you hear that, when you go back, and you know that was at a town hall, which Mr. Trudeau favored in his early early days in, in as prime minister, when you hear that, what's your reaction? Like I said, it, it kind of gets my blood boiling. Um, and uh, now, subs- uh, you may recall, I think he did a town hall in Regina about two weeks after that, and a, um, a woman who works in the oil fields stood up and tore a strip off the prime minister, and he walked it back and apologized. Uh, but there's no doubt that the view that the oil, quotes, oil sands must be phased out is, uh, a, is what's behind uh, so many of the policies of this government. I mean, you look at the federal, look, the, the Canadian oil and gas sector, Roy, as I've pointed out to you before, is the largest sector of the Canadian economy. 20% of our exports are tied to it. 800,000 jobs directly and indirectly. Uh, the value of our currency inextricably linked to it. And uh, so much more. So much of our manufacturing industry, uh, One, I think $1.2 trillion of taxes and revenues have been paid to governments in recent decades out of that industry. The largest part of it is the oil sands. And yet you have a federal budget last week, which does not say one single positive thing about that industry. Instead, layering on, layering on more costs and regulations um, that, pocket, that, that are basically about phasing it out. And, and it just, it, it, uh, it, it makes people, uh, at least in this part of the country, very upset. Yeah, and I didn't play that clip just to upset you. I, I played that clip because it ties into the first thing I want to talk to you about or hear from you about. And I saw a tweet from you, I think it was two or three days ago, and it was titled on Twitter, at Jay Kenny, oil is not dead. And it isn't. But, Premier, it's outrageous that we don't have a pipeline network to get Canadian or Alberta oil to Tidewater. And we're living in a country where we import at least 700,000 barrels of foreign oil daily from some questionable regime. So I didn't just grab that clip out of thin air. I'd like you to speak to the fact that oil is not dead, please. Well, obviously it's not. And Roy, uh, before COVID, the world was consuming about 100, uh, just over 100 million barrels of oil a day. Uh, we're now back up to about 97 million barrels, and the global economy is nowhere close to full recovery. Uh, post-recovery, we'll we'll see a significant increase, which is why projections for oil prices this year, in the last two quarters of this year, are for significant increase. I think um, uh, I've seen projections from major banks about $85 Brent prices, which would be We'd be selling Alberta oil for about $70, $75 a barrel if that was the case. So demand is going to continue to grow um, as the world economy recovers. And as as people in the developing world seek a way out of energy poverty, one of the things I find most uh, disturbing about the moral unctuousness of the uh, leave-it-in-the-ground crowd is, you know, these, these are typically... Uh, wealthy and upper middle class people in highly developed countries um, who don't know what it's like to live 
in much of the developing world, where major fuel sources include burning cow dung and scraps of wood with not just high carbon emissions, but also NOx and SOx and particulate that uh, are terrible for human health. Those folks want to be able to plug into a reliable grid fueled by, by natural gas. They, they want to be able to afford maybe a small car that, guess what, is going to be fueled by gasoline. They want the same basics of energy security and, and, and affordability that we all take for granted. And, that, and they're going to get it one way or another, which means global demand will increase. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I know that the, 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 I call it the sort of the pixie dust crowd. They think if we just sprinkle pixie dust and, you know, unicorn farts, we can somehow replace oil and gas. The truth is that according to Bill Gates, if the entire world were to convert to electric vehicles tomorrow, oil consumption would only go down by 7%. So, Roy, we are, we are going to be seeing substantial demand for this, these products for at least the next 20 to 30 years, and I'd rather that we supply it than Saudi Arabia and Russia. It makes no sense. And even when you look at and you know this as well, maybe better than I, the Montreal Economic Institute surveys Quebecers on a regular basis on the issue of, do you want oil? Where do you want it from? And invariably, Quebecers, not necessarily the elites, but the folks, they want oil, they want it from Alberta, they want it by pipeline, and they want it now. Absolutely true. And uh, if you just give them the choice, um, and I, one thing perhaps we should have in this country is is uh, country of origin labeling so that people know when they go in, in, in Halifax or in, in Quebec City and fill up, they're supporting uh, uh, conflict oil. You know, a long, some time ago, you may recall, right, that the uh, ethical, you know, that there were interest groups that got the diamond industry to label, quotes, conflict diamonds, those that came from Angola. I remember that. During the brutal, brutal civil war. Yes. Because those diamonds, those diamonds were fueling uh, coups and civil wars, violence and conflict to control the resource. Well, why don't we notionally label conflict oil? Vladimir Putin, right now, you know, this is unbelievable. The Biden administration canceled Keystone XL on day one of their administration. Mm -hmm. But they are refusing to oppose uh, or impose sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that will bring Russian natural gas into Germany, uh, which is a Russian strategy to, to avoid having to send it through Ukraine. So basically, the Biden administration is effectively neutral on a Vladimir Putin pipeline that will enrich a regime that uh, murders its opponents and, and, is, and is a gross violator of human rights while opposing a pipeline from friendly Canada. Yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me either that we have people, organizations in this country, which would benefit from, we all would benefit from, revenue generated by Canadian oil being exported to the world, which wants the oil, uh, and, and they stand in the way. And somehow, I guess they feel it's better to have oil from Saudi Arabia. Minister of the Federal Budget, what do you say? Well, I, as, a, as a former federal minister who worked hard to grind down spending, um, it is, uh, I have to say, it's, it's a bit um, of a shocker to, to see uh, an acceptance of 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 endless deficit spending. Now, having said that, we're in a big deficit here in Alberta, but we have a plan to, to get out of it. And we know that the, the so-called new monetary theory, that you can 
basically prince your way out of a fiscal problem uh, has never worked in the past. It will never work in the future. It ultimately will lead to inflation, which is a tax on everybody's life savings. So that concerns me. But really, I guess what concerns me more, Roy, again, is this is this total lack of, of, of a focus on the country's largest industry. There was one uh, small nod in our direction, which we appreciate, uh, a commitment to create an incentive for carbon capture and sequestration technology or storage technology that can help us to reduce the uh, carbon output of our energy industry so we can meet or beat oil produced in any other part of the world and ensure a future for our industry and access to capital so that 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 might be hope we've got to work through some more details on that so uh but but broadly i would say um that what i think all governments need to do as we recover from covid is to focus obsessively on economic growth. Canada has been trailing the developed world on investment now for the past decade. Much of that is because of investment fleeing our oil and gas sector. We need to bring that investment back to get jobs and incomes back up in this country. Let me ask you about COVID. Uh, What's your reality in Alberta today? And I've been looking at the numbers. Most of us have. We see the numbers going up in Alberta. They're going up in many provinces. Others, they're stabilizing a little bit. I don't know where we are right now, honestly. But what's the reality in Alberta? And what is your assessment of the federal government's performance as far as providing vaccines for the provinces and uh, to Canadians is concerned? Well, we we do have a very concerning growth in COVID as part of this third wave, uh, and much of it driven by these more contagious uh, variants. Um, and, and, and we have to, you know, I just constantly call on Albertans to, to please do their best, to limit their interactions, to, to, to stop the spread. I know everybody's tired, but if we can do it in the next uh, few weeks, we'll be past this thing, thanks finally to vaccines uh, starting to, to arrive. Uh, in terms of the, 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 the federal approach, Roy, um, they had just basically two things to do. Control the borders to stop COVID from coming in and to get us adequate vaccines. And, and I, I, I cannot, uh, look, I can't express my frustration on, on those two fronts. We, we saw the East Asian countries shut down their borders from COVID hotspots right off the top, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, etc. And they basically had no COVID and virtually no restrictions as a result. And then we saw other countries like Israel and, and, and the UK get way, way ahead of us on vaccines. We've been 40th to 50th per capita, certainly in the first three to four months of this year. But Roy, at least we are catching up now. We just encourage people as soon as they're eligible to get those vaccines by, I think, May the 5th, we will have inoculated a third of our population and another 10% have antibodies from prior natural infection. So we're, we'll be getting to a place, I think, about a month from now where the vaccines really start to have a measurable impact in interrupting the chain of transmission. And uh, you passed legislation which will allow workers uh, paid leave to get their uh, COVID-19 vaccination. I know that was an issue in your province. Let me ask you one more question. This unsigned letter that uh, is being written about, talked about, unsigned letter from uh, UCP constituency folks calling for you to resign. I, if, if something's not signed... Just me, I wouldn't even read it, but if there's no signature on it, I'm not interested. But, Premier, what, what do you say to this? Well, I, I, it's the first time I've ever seen uh, an unsigned document become media coverage, get uh, media coverage. Um, that seems to me pretty much without precedent. Uh, look, the, the truth is that uh, there are uh, some conservatives in Alberta who are uh, just 
ticked off, royally ticked off at public health measures and restrictions. Um, I understand that. I don't like them one bit at all. Um, and we've taken, our approach has been that public health restrictions should be a last and limited resort to pre- avoid large-scale preventable deaths and keep our healthcare system from being overwhelmed. But generally, over the past year, we've taken a much lighter touch than most Canadian provinces, than all Canadian provinces, most U.S. states, and almost all European countries. And uh, so I think what you're seeing is is some of that stuff is just basically uh, accumulated frustration with COVID. And the fact that the government has had to step in to to prevent our healthcare system from being overwhelmed. I think we'll get past that when we get past COVID and can get refocused on issues that unite Albertans like economic growth, job creation, and standing up for a fair deal for our country and the Federation. So I'm, I'm, I'm confident of that. At its most critical, what is India facing today, Joanna? As far as the second wave of COVID is concerned, how many are ill, seriously ill, and how many people are dying? Well, what we're seeing here in India right now is a staggeringly large second wave of uh, coronavirus cases. We've written that it's less like a wave and more like a wall because the line goes just straight up. Uh, In the last 24 hours, India added more than 330,000 new infections. That's a record in the pandemic. No country so far has ever added so many cases in such a short period of time. Uh, about 2,200 people died in the same period. Uh, That's not as much as what we saw in uh, Brazil and the United States at various points, but everyone believes here that that the official numbers are really vast undercounts, so it's hard to to say where it really falls uh, in in the global rankings. You write that India's current COVID crisis is a major reason for the global climb, in COVID cases, one in three new cases occurs in India. Could you speak to that, please? That's correct. India is, is uh, the major force behind uh, the fact that we're we're once again recording as many cases as we ever have uh, in the pandemic. So um, it's not exactly where anyone wanted to be now. Let's say 16 months uh, after this uh, virus uh, emerged. So uh, a few months ago, if we go back to the to January and perhaps February of this year, situation seemed to be, if not under control, certainly far better, and uh, seemed to be approaching a, a. It's hard to say this during a pandemic, but a a tolerable level as far as infections are concerned. When you have uh, a, a massive capacity to create vaccines, that's that's correct. That's correct. In in. The number of cases in India fell to a very low number in February and uh, January, uh, less than 10,000 a day. And antibody surveys appeared to show that a large proportion of people in cities had been exposed and India started its vaccination campaign. And as you noted, India is a major vaccine manufacturer. So at first glance, it wouldn't appear to have uh, supply constraints, but it seems that with the society effectively opening up entirely uh, and resuming life more or less as normal, combined with new variants, that those two things uh, together uh, appear to have set the stage for the tragedy that we're now uh, witnessing uh, every day. 
you know, I think um, the government certainly uh, has been complacent. Uh, it There's a state under election, election underway that's very important for the ruling party, uh, the Bharatiya Janta Party. Uh, and they have shown uh, no desire to cut back on campaigning, you know, earlier this week, uh, even as, uh, sorry, last week now, um, I, even as I was interviewing someone who was telling me about people who were dying at home because they were unable to get hospital care, you know, the prime minister was conducting massive rallies. Now, obviously, India is a big country like Canada. There are different things happening in different places, but, you know, it sends a message. And we know that if COVID is spreading in one part of the country, it will eventually make it to the entire country. And uh, and I think it's that's that's where we are right now, which is uh, disastrous. Yeah. Would you share with us what the reality is as far as the healthcare system in India is concerned and uh, what's happening at the hospitals? I just read a story earlier today about a critical shortage of oxygen. Well, the healthcare system is is buckling. There's no other word for it in large parts of the country. Here in the capital, in Delhi, uh, in the state of Maharashtra, in the state of Uttar Pradesh, uh, India's largest state, uh, in the state of Gujarat in the west. So here in Delhi, the top elected official has warned of imminent oxygen shortages. Several hospitals have said they are hours away from running out. So far, you know, utter catastrophe has been avoided, sort of, uh, at the last minute, but you know we, you know we've talked to people who, whose families members are dying at home because they couldn't get a hospital bed, and you see footage of people dying outside room inside, and we've died inside hospitals because there aren't enough ventilators, so people are dying because there is a lack of medical care right now, and. That's what it means when a health system is utterly overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us, please, about, and you may have been referencing this gentleman a few minutes ago, but would you tell us, please, about Mohammad Shahzad and his family and what happened to them? Yeah. So uh, we wrote about uh, their family because it was just so emblematic of the absolutely frantic struggle that so many people are facing now. Uh, in trying to get hospital beds. So uh, this 40-year-old uh, man, he's an accountant. Uh, he had a fever and began to have uh, trouble breathing. His oxygen levels fell to a dangerous level, um, and his wife took him to a hospital. The hospital checked his oxygen but said, we have no beds. Uh, she spent the next four hours uh, running from hospital to hospital trying to get him a bed. There were no beds. So she took him home, hoping that he would get better. And at 3.30 in the morning, with him struggling to breathe, she called an ambulance. And the ambulance came, and the ambulance driver said, do you really need this oxygen? Because if not, I, will. I need to be careful with how much oxygen I, I use. I mean, ultimately, in his case, he found a hospital bed, which in this case, <laughs> in these days is a, is a happy ending, even if it took an inordinate amount of time and an absolutely um, frightening amount of effort by his family to get him there. And we were in touch with actually the family later and, and luckily he, he appears to be all right. So 
again, that's 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 a relief. But there are so many other people for whom the story is is ending quite differently. Yeah, uh, the uh, Serum Institute in India produces, I believe, some two point four two point four million vaccine doses per day, and uh, and we've been hearing that that's not nearly enough, and India is now holding on to supply for domestic use. Uh, what is the vaccine supply situation like? Well, India has, as I mentioned, a very uh, large and robust vaccine manufacturing industry. Serum Institute of India is by, you know, it says that it makes, you know, the largest number of vaccines by volume uh, in the world. Uh, and yet the amount of supply that India has right now is is not enough for India. So they're I'm sure there's going to be a lot of time spent on why that's the case, why Serum Institute, it's effectively Serum Institute is the, the manufacturer for India's vaccine program. There's also another vaccine, but it's being used in an indigenously developed vaccine, but it's being used in very small uh, amounts. So basically what happens to Serum Institute, whatever Serum Institute is capable of producing, that is what is available to India. And for various reasons, its capacity right now is not enough to meet uh, India's demand, let alone all the commitments that Serum has made to uh, programs outside India. And that includes COVAX, you know, the World Health Organization initiative to uh, distribute vaccines equitably to countries around the world. Dr. Ronald St. John has 35 years as a career in public health and infectious diseases control, both in Canada and the United States, as well as the World Health Organization Regional Office for the Americas. He was the first director general for the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at the Public Health Agency of Canada, was also the national manager for Canada's response to SARS, and founded the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, GFEN, which we've talked about on this program. Dr. St. John is back with us on the program. Dr. St. John, good to have you with us. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation to join you. Well, I uh, th- thank you for joining us. I, um, I watched one of your TED Talk segments from 2016 when you spoke about travel and uh, the spread of pandemics. So fundamental bottom line question is how does travel affect the spread of pandemics if it does? Well... Certain diseases, especially the respiratory ones, uh, can obviously be carried, they are carried by people. And people get on airplanes and uh, they get off somewhere else. And depending on how transmissible the agent uh, is that they're carrying, they could start a brand new outbreak. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened with, uh, with uh, the COVID um, and the variants. The variants are all brought by people and they're all brought by, tra- by travel. Uh, and the rapid spread of uh, COVID around the world just reflects the incredible global mobility of our population. Dr. St. John, have we, has Canada, has the Public Health Agency of Canada, has the government of Canada, and we have to be frank with one another in this country now, that's what people expect, and I know you are, most definitely, but have we been slow to respond as far as closing borders or minimizing the effect of a pandemic by travel? Well, I'm, I don't know if we've been slow. Or, or the, tr- the trouble is that you, it's very difficult, extremely difficult, 
to have a total closure of a border, uh, especially in a country like Canada. Now, if you're in New Zealand, that's a lot easier. You're an island out way out in the middle of the ocean, and you can and most of the, most of the people that get there go by air, and you can control air entry and exit. Uh, it's a little more difficult in a country like Canada, where we have this long land border with the with the countries of the south, and huge numbers of people that cross that border every day. Uh, there was a you know we remember people may remember the 9/11 uh, episode in in Canada's response when the United States closed their air air uh, space uh, in, immediately, and we followed suit. And the end result was we had uh, a, a parking lot of airplanes in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick because they had to st- and uh, Newfoundland they had to stop somewhere, and we had about forty thousand people isolated. That was just for four days. Um, it, it's it's so difficult in the modern times to have a an absolute total closure of borders. However, we have instituted some um, measures in Canada. Well, I think they're good ones to deter people from international travel. Besides telling them not to do it, we have imposed uh, some screening procedures and quarantine procedures when you come back, and they can be expensive, and those are deterrents. That helps. Land border, a whole other big issue. So there are loopholes. Uh, we do the, the measures on the border, I think, slow down the importation of uh, other mutants or variants, but I'm afraid we can't. It's very difficult to see how we can stop it altogether. I found it very interesting. Again, in that uh, speech that you gave in 2016, I had no idea, but that, and that was five years ago, that there were three billion travelers on planes per year, according to IATA. And and you pointed out that uh, the host is often not aware of the viral infection because of the incubation period. So, and I'm not making excuses here. I think our I think our just my opinion. I think our airports should have been closed more effectively than they have been, and some time ago. But you pointed out that the host is often not aware of the viral infection because of the incubation period. That's correct. Uh, take COVID as a good example. Um, if you Let's say let's say I'm in England and I'm going to come back to Canada, and I know I have to have a, a test uh, in order to come into Canada, and I know I'll be tested when I land. Um, so I get my test done. Uh, let's say I'm I'm leaving on uh, tomorrow Monday, and so I have my test done yesterday, and I've got a negative result. But tonight everybody decides they're going to have a going away party for me. <laughs> And, uh, and there are a few people there without masks, and I get infected tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to have a positive test for a few days. So I arrive in Canada tomorrow. I get tested. The test is negative. Um, and it will continue that way for a few days. If I just go home, uh, I could be one of the asymptomatic carriers and not even know I'm infected. What's important is that uh, I am put in, into a quarantine position or quarantine uh, as soon as I arrive in Canada, for 14 days, because that'll cover the incubation period. So if I'm going to get sick during that period, it'll show up. If I'm not going to get sick, I can be tested at the end of the 14 days, uh, and I will probably be positive. Uh, the point, the point being that the quarantine has to be really strictly enforced. We ask people to do it; most people do, but not everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, that's the problem is how do you enforce it? Because we can't put a, a policeman on everybody's doorstep. 
Yeah, I just it just seems to me, and this is my opinion as somebody who observes the, what's going on, it's, it's my job to do that. I just think that we've been confused and confusing about what we, uh, about what we, how we've been handling this, and, and I think we could have done far better. But let, let me ask you this. What would we be wise to consider to do to slow down the COVID variants at this time, understanding there's a tremendous amount of public COVID fatigue? Yeah, well, uh, first, number one, we, we acknowledge it's already, the variants are already here, um, and uh, acknowledge that there may be more in the near future. Um, we should we should be we know everybody knows that the public health measures that we have available the mask and the and the distancing and the reducing your contacts and stay at home and don't take essential tra- don't take don't take travel unless it's essential all that stuff that works and it works against the regular coronavirus it works against the bio, the variants too because they're spread just the same way as the standard coronavirus is spread. Then the vaccine is another tool. It's an added tool. Um, and until we get uh, a huge number of people vaccinated uh, with a good result, we need to use both tools all the time. Uh, and and that, that people have to understand that that's, that's how we can get this thing under some degree of control. Dr. St. John, in, uh, in the 1980s, when you were the director of public health control for the World Health Organization, in the Americas, you became aware of the first cases of HIV/AIDS. They were spread by travel, were they not? Absolutely, yeah. The uh, again, it's a virus, and the vi- viruses don't live outside of the body very well. They have to be carried and passed from person to person. And uh, HIV is absolutely was uh, was spread worldwide and rather quickly by uh, by people. Um, many of whom didn't even know they were infected. Uh, HIV has such a long incubation period that uh, many people could become infected before the first disease actually showed up, and that that was part of the reason why it was spread so quickly, so widely. Mm -hmm. In the mid-'90s, when you were at PHAC, you noticed a broadcast of live television footage of people fleeing the city of Surat in India. Tell us what happened, please. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, um, I, I had um, a television set in my office because I needed to look, you know, just check the news uh, in the mornings. So I came in the morning, this was 96, I think, uh, and uh, CNN was showing live pictures. And, of course, this was the days when live pictures from around the world were kind of, uh, were, were kind of novelty. And, and um, they showed people actually fleeing the city of the Surat in India because of uh, a possible outbreak of mnemonic plague. Mnemonic plague is a plague that affects your lungs. And again, this is spread by coughing and, and uh, sneezing. And um, it's one of the worst kinds of plague because uh, in some cases in 24 hours, you could be dead. Um, so there were people were fleeing. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. That's a long way away, uh, almost on the other side of the world. Didn't give it a second thought until an hour later. The, um, the head of the, the director of the Pearson Airport uh, in, in uh, Toronto um, called me up on the phone and said uh, that they had been watching television also in Toronto and said that um, there was an Air India flight coming uh, from India, of course, and um, it was a big 747, and it was past the turnaround 
point, and everybody was afraid there'd be plague on that airplane, and everybody, if that plane landed, everybody's going to go home. Um, now, at that time, there were 30,000 people working at Pearson Airport. So 30,000 people were going to walk off um, the job. Um, and that brought the whole problem of a, just, uh, the whole issue of a distant problem, a distant outbreak. Put it right in our backyard in Canada. Right. And uh, this plane was going to land unless we did something. Well, to make a long story short, we were able to send one of our quarantine officers to Toronto before the Air India plane arrived, got everybody calmed down. He, uh, he did an inspection of the plane before it was allowed to go all the way to the gangway. Uh, there was obviously no plague on the airport on the airplane. We knew that, but perceptions are important, and everybody was calm. But that led us to think we needed better early warning than just in one hour. Uh, we needed to know what was happening uh, all over the world, really, and that led to the development of our early warning system, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network. And what a tremendous success that was. Um, yes. And with the World Health Organization using it, different countries using it, based here in Canada, founded by you, Public Health Agency of Canada, found through various means, detective work really, what was going on in the world. Might have been something financial, could have been anything that, that got on the radar of, uh, of the, the GFIN uh, folks, uh, and, uh, and then they would find, uh, long before anybody else would, um, when when something was happening, developing, that could be a real health threat, including a pandemic. So they're not doing what they were doing, uh, and they should be doing. Do you believe that G- if GFIN had been operating at its maximum potential, fulfilling its mandate, that COVID would have been discovered sooner? Uh, in this case, I don't think it could have been discovered sooner, but at the same time, when GFIN became aware of it on December 31st, um, with the first media reports in China of this mysterious pneumonia in Wuhan, um, they did not issue the global early alert that they were. That was part of their mission was to issue a global alert. Um, that did not happen because yeah. um, GFIN had been told not to issue any more global alerts. Yeah. Um, Which was wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are events. I mean, GFIN is kind of an intelligence system. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, you want to detect an event uh, that's happening, and you may or may not know whether this is going to become a huge pandemic or not. Mm-hmm. We see reports in, uh, from around the world from time to time of some people in a remote village are dying of an unknown cause, and uh, people are, are concerned. And you you have to know about that uh, in order to do some analysis and risk analysis to say, well, do you think this is going to become big or not? Dr. St. John, they would have been far better off keeping an eye on the world as they were doing than studying vaping in Canada. Anybody could do that. I could do that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.